Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. So this is another one of those situations where we're not alone. Oh, man. Who's here? Hi. I am a voice that you probably don't recognize. Or maybe you do. <laughs> There's a chance. It is possible. Uh, we'd like to welcome to the show, Corey. Uh, he is here to help us with a special episode because we've been talking about this thing that we do, this game we've been playing, Eternal, for uh, a year now. <laughs> and we decided that we should, for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar, we should talk about collectible card games. So, and Corey's an expert on this, so <laughs> he's here to help. And uh, Corey, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you're here. All right, so yeah, uh, I am Corey, Corey Serino, a.k.a. Sir Rhino, for those that maybe follow me in, on other digital platforms. It comes from mispronouncing my last name. Uh, it's, a, it's a great way to come up with, with an online alias, I got to say. Uh, and yeah, I really like playing card games, uh, and I play a lot of Eternal, like uh, Coons and uh, Greg talk about playing. I, I was maybe the one that kind of got them into that, at least indirectly. I've been playing that now for almost two years. I got in very early in the closed beta. Uh, before that, I played a lot of Magic, and I've done pretty well at both of those games. I never got on the Pro Tour in Magic. I was about, I was literally one match away from getting on the Pro Tour and lost it. That was fun. Uh, and in Eternal, I've won a couple of big events. I stream it pretty often. Uh, frequently i'm a twitch partner which i got uh exclusively through it streaming eternal so i really enjoy playing card games uh it's a big part of my life and uh i love talking about them so it seemed like a good opportunity to get on a podcast uh, i have my own as well but we'll, we'll plug that later but i'm, I'm happy to join <laughs> the reality alternative podcast today well, it is, it's rare that we have someone who actually has some credentials behind their expertise. Well, it's rare that we have anyone <laughs> other than, other than you know, the sound of my dog uh, pawing at my lap. Um, but it is good to have somebody who definitely has a different experience with this than Andrew and I, whereas Andrew and I uh, are entirely recreational players. You are competitive and is semi-pro worth what were you? Can we say that? Yeah, technically, I'm a pro in that I've made money off of playing card games. Like, I don't consider myself a professional player, but <laughs> but I guess I've, I I have made more than zero dollars, which is mo more than <laughs> many people can say. Whereas for most of us, it only costs us money. <laughs> Lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of good because we have a little bit of a spectrum here because I am probably the least familiar and least card game have the least history with card games although i have a fair amount and then probably greg is next step up and then greg is or Corey is another step up from there so we've got a little bit of a spectrum of experience mm -hmm. and i think that'll help really highlight the beauty of card games as as we get into what they're all about is that they they're so flexible in what you can do with them and how you how you can explore and what you get out of them just because you, you set up rules. It's, it's very Dungeons and Dragons like in that sense where you have these rules, you have these tools available to you and it's kind of up to you how you want to put them together and how to explore what they can do. Well put. So should we describe a little bit uh, what this phenomenon is? Yeah, because this is the sort of thing that for those of us who are in the game space this is a huge thing it's a whole category of games 
but for folks who are outside of that kind of tabletop um, space, it might not be as obvious what this is. Um, although that may be a little different now because I think that, you know, you younger kids uh, had a lot more of the Pokemans and the Yu-Gi-Oh's uh, when you guys were of that target age than what I did. Um, but so we're talking about collectible, collect, collectible, collectible card games, also called trading card games, um, which are, of course, card games, and they are collectible, easy, but really to kind of define what these things are, we have to talk about Magic, Magic the Gathering, because that was really the first. Um, there were, you know, card games above and beyond, you know, Poker and Go Fish and Uno, but this was one of the first that really introduced the collectible part. Mm -hmm. So um, what this differentiates this from, again, like Uno or any of the kind of little one-off card games that you can buy at the game store, or I was about to say Toys R Us, but not anymore, um, <laughs> is that the cards themselves are collectible, like baseball cards, so that there is a defined set of cards and they're sold essentially in randomized packs. Now, you know, a lot of the bigger games like Magic will sell you, you know, pre-configured starter decks and all that, but the main way to get cards is in randomized packs, or at least semi-randomized. Um, and the, the pool of available cards is much bigger than what you would think of in a traditional card game. In a traditional, you know, deck of cards that you would use to, to play poker or blackjack, you've got 52 or 54 cards if you count the Jokers, each card is distinct. You've got, you know, an ace of diamonds and a two of clubs, two distinct cards. Um, but one single set of magic, of which there are many, you're going to have 200 to 300 distinct different cards in that. And over the entire course of this game's run over the last 24 years, it's 25 years, yeah. um, it's there up to about 20,000 distinct cards. Um that are, you know, available to be used in the game. So, and these cards have, obviously they have varying kind of powers and abilities within the game. Um, and the more powerful cards are generally rarer cards. Um, and from that pool of cards, each player builds their own deck that they play with. So there's usually certain parameters around how many of particular cards you can include in your deck you know, maybe minimum, maximum sizes, but you are coming to the game with a deck you constructed yourself out of all of these cards. Um, and also importantly, I think that differentiates this type of game from um, other more traditional card games is that playing each card, using each card requires some in-game resources that come generally from other cards. So there's a kind of an economy going on within the game that constrains your choices and forces you to, you know, use creative strategies to design your deck and to navigate through each turn. Does that kind of cover all the distinct characteristics of the collectible card game? Uh, it does a, a, a good... A uh, very succinct job of it. You can go real deep in terms of varieties nowadays, but, but yeah, I think it's the the one thing that can't be understated here is really how important Magic the Gathering was. Because as you said before, yeah, there were collectible games like sports cards of baseball or whatever, and there were ways to play games with with other 
cards, like, like your t- traditional deck of 52 cards. Like if you go back and look at some of the great game designers and their journals and biographies, they'll be like, well, I started working on this in Bridge Club and, and to, <laughs> to develop something new to play. And like across the board, your Richard Garfields or whoever else, they were all in like Bridge Club back in the day because that was like the only card game to play with in-depth strategy. And now we have just a wealth of options as uh, it's just been a huge expansive market now since, you know, Magic came out. And then as we were talking about in the mid to late 90s at, after Magic came out, there's this huge boom of Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh! And, and everything else. And it's just kind of spiraled since then. So be a good time for maybe a, a brief history, as Corey said. Uh, Magic Gathering came out in 1993? Yes. Correct? Yes. And it really was the first of its kind. Uh, it dominated. It kind of came in on some other trends that sort of helped maybe right place, right time kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, we proceeded from there to have this whole industry develop around it. Right. When when Magic came out, there was nothing really like it. And uh, Richard Garfield, the head, head designer and original creator of Magic, didn't really know how crazy it was going to be. Like, nobody knew. He he does. The, the Magic we play today is nothing like what it was originally designed to be. He simply thought people would buy a few packs and that would be it. And then people started buying hundreds of packs and they could never keep up with the print <laughs> run. And it became this huge phenomenon. And, and from there, different rules and different ideas of what you can do with card games sort of sprouted. And I think that there was, there was something about the thinking back to that time period and thinking back to like when I was buying magic cards um, is that the comic book boom of the early nineties was, I think pretty instrumental to magic success and thus the success of card games or collectible card games entirely because before that, bef- the only place you could go to buy like Dungeons and Dragons type stuff were like specialty game stores and hobby stores, which were very, very rare, much more rare than they are today. Um, and but Magic, because, you know, it's a card game. It doesn't require a huge box. It doesn't require a big book to sell. It's a it's, it's a box of cards that can sit on a shelf. Um, so you could sell these things in comic shops, which was a whole market that other traditional tabletop fantasy games didn't really have access to. So you have all these comic shops springing up because of the comic comics boom and magic is able to be sold in those shops um, to kids like me who didn't have easy access to, you know, um, uh, like these specialty game stores. So it was huge. And then eventually you start seeing them in places like grocery stores and quick marts and whatever that, you know, just how many packs of cards did I buy? Like, you know, in the line at the grocery store with my mom at Giant, and I'm like, oh, oh, can I get a, can I get a pack of Magic cards? Oh, yeah, yeah, right, uh, right next to the candy bars. <laughs> um, and I think that the, that D and D connection is important too, because I think by the '90s, um, Dungeons and Dragons and the rest of the tabletop role playing market had had started to build up enough steam um, that this kind of idea of a fantasy tabletop game was easier for people to digest. And it kind of had a built in audience of, you know, fantasy game nerds. So it was, it was, there was something it could take hold of um, that was already existing in the market. And that fantasy setting is, I think pretty crucial because when you look at most of the other successful games, they all share a fantasy setting to some degree. And there's something I don't understand 
you know, exactly why it's so deeply connected. But if you think about it, like you could design a game like Magic that just uses abstract concepts. It doesn't need to be dragons and skeletons. Um, it could just be, you know, it could just be big numbers smashing into each other. Mm -hmm. And the game would be, you know, functionally exactly the same. Um, and it could have been spaceships. But there's something about um, this fantasy setting that really made it take off. And if you look at some of its most successful imitators, especially today in the digital realm, like Hearthstone, are also using that um that fantasy setting yeah i think a big thing to, to latch on to there is uh, in terms of how it relates to dungeons and dragons is is its name magic the gathering that's not some thing they just magically made up and came up with at random it was about you know the initial lore and concept behind it was a gathering of magicians or sorcerers and and uh, a related idea to that was all right if you're playing D, &D with a play group you can't really pick up and port your character into another setting with a different friend's play group with magic the gathering your deck is you and it's supposed to represent this wizard casting spells and winning a battle and you can take that deck which is effectively your character and take it to a friend's house take it to a different play group across the country sit it down and play a game with somebody totally different and still be within the same rules same confines but still be able to express what you want to do within the game and that was really cool for his time and still uh, holds up really well today. Well put. So I thought that we did a little bit of history on collectible card games and where it came from. And I thought it would be fun a little bit to talk about our own personal experiences with uh, how we sort of, what our what role played in our lives and sort of what we were into and the path we took to where we are today. So when I started playing card games, I started pretty young as most people do, I guess. Uh, you know, probably elementary school. You know, at this time, I said this was you know, mid late nineties. And the big thing was the big wave of like the, the successors to not successors to magic, but the other big commercial successes, Pokemon being the biggest one. I was really into the star Wars collectible card game. Big surprise. Uh, you know, and then eventually Yuk Yu-Gi-Oh Dragon Ball Z. A lot of these things were franchised because that was what, you know, it's an easy way to tie it into what kids like and the things they know. And of course you want to play Goku because it's Goku or whatever. Um, I mean, no one's played Goku because he's boring, but uh, <laughs> I didn't actually really like eventually I got into magic probably a little bit later, maybe like closer to middle school, uh, maybe even high school. I didn't really know how to play magic that well. And I had sort of an embarrassing time. I went to like a little local tournament at like a game store uh, where I'm from. It's probably like 10 people. And I was like, you know, maybe 11 or 12. And I was like by far the youngest person there by at least double because there are a bunch of old fogies like Greg and... I like we pl we played, but I guess we didn't like know like all the specific rules of different things, and just like really was like uh, stands in my mind as like a very embarrassing moment. Um, you know, eventually our playing sort of relegated to more like secret time with the friends who wouldn't talk about it at school because it was a little embarrassing. Like it was felt a little childish to be playing Yu-Gi-Oh. That was probably the one that we played most consistently and seriously in like late middle school, early high school, probably throughout high school. And then uh, you know, then I sort of stopped playing CCGs altogether. It wasn't up until it was up only in grad school that I started. I was living with my friend and his now wife. And, you know, we we're kind of like, wow, oh, well, what's something to do in the evenings that would be fun. And I, I'm like, we we're like, you know, people talking about it, like, what if we buy, bought a couple of Star Decks and Magic? And like, that's all we bought or like had some sort of strict rules that like you could only <laughs> buy like a pack a month or something because we knew what this could do to people and friends groups and things can get out of control very quickly. So we started that. It was a lot of fun. I got into it. 
Um, then we proceeded to get most of our other friends into it. And then I sort of backed out when it got too competitive. <laughs> Corey, um, I couldn't keep <laughs> up with the economics of it all. And um, yeah, so I just sort of pulled out of that. I still thought it was cool. I still liked hearing about it. I still liked following some of the you know sets and things that were coming out, the new mechanics. Uh, but now then it can't turn into the digital space. And that's really where uh, a lot of action's happening now, although not solely there for sure. I tried Hearthstone briefly and I hated it. But now I'm on to Eternal. So my story, uh, well, first of all, let me say that that experience of like, it's like post-college and you and a bunch of friends get together and there's that moment at some party where you all kind of meet eyes and realize like, oh shit, we all play magic. (laughs) Oh shit, we've all got some money. Like, what are we going to do? And like, I had, I had so several experiences that were almost exactly like that. We are like, we're just going to buy, we're going to buy one box. We're going to draft it out and that's going to be it. And we're going to be done and we're going to be out. We're not going to, this isn't going to be a thing. We're not going to get all weird with it. Oh, but we, you totally get weird with it. Um, I was just, you were saying that and I just was laughing. I was like, holy shit. I've had that exact same experience. <laughs> um, but yeah, my magic story starts in, I, uh, apparently and I, I was, I was, I had to like, do the math on this and like, you know, f- you know, go back through like the Wizards of the Coast archive and figure out like when different sets were released. But I was introduced to this game in 1993, which is the first year that it was out. Um, the summer of 1993, near as I can tell. So it had not been on the market that long when I was introduced to it. But, um, you know, I had my, my kind of my neighborhood friend um, introduced me to it. And, um, I remember really, really liking it, but also I was like, I was like 10 years old. So, and the only place where I knew of that you could buy these things was this shop that still exists, um, over in, in Newark, Delaware, outside the university, outside the U of D called days of nights. And yes, nights is spelled with a K. Um, but it is like (laughs) a, um, old school, like dedicated tabletop gaming shop. Um, and tabletop gaming ephemera like swords and every year they do like a big sale slash party for Bilbo Baggins birthday like it is that kind of place but it was the only place you could you know get cards that I knew of and um, that store was a little intimidating for a 10 year old also how the hell am I going to get there Um, we were living in Delaware at the time but anyway Um, so I didn't really start buying cards on my own until we moved to Pennsylvania and now I'm like it's like fifth grade so it's like 95 ish um and where i kind of was able to connect with other kids in you know i'm in a new school with all these new people and i found a couple other kids who played magic and at that point i was under the impression that like you just have cards you put all your cards into a deck and you play with that and they were like oh no you like you like build a deck man like you don't have to use all your cards and you can even just make it one color and i was like what <laughs> my whole world changed um and there was a comic shop near the grocery store where i could buy new buy new cards um and i really wish i'd known more about what i was getting into back when i first started because that was during like the alpha beta unlimited run with a very early run of cards that were just loaded up with like super rare misprints and weird crap that's worth <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars today. But I didn't know. Um, I was 10. Um, but yeah, so I played through middle school, um, uh, dropped off a little bit in high school, um, 
probably because girls. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I can't really remember exactly why I dropped off. Like, I just, again, I was looking through the timeline of like when different sets were released, and I'm like, okay. I remember dropping off after Mirage. That was 1997. All right, where was I in 1997? Oh, right. Uh, high school. Okay, sure. So trying to be cool, trying to get away from this stuff, maybe. Um, but then in later high school, I guess when I gave up on uh, any hopes of reinventing myself socially, um, and I think, you know, you you kind of realize again, like, it's that moment where, like, you lock eyes with people who've been your friends for a while, and you're like, oh, you, you play Magic too? Because this was pre-widespread nerd culture so you're not like it was kind of like kept in the shadows and like you didn't want to so anyway you find out we're playing a lot in late high school and then like summer vacations in college um all through the um you know early 2000s but then it gets harder to sustain a dedicated play group and i was never i was never the guy to go out and play competitively to like go down to the hobby shop and like on magic night and like play with strangers that's just never been in my personality i just want to like play with my friends and um i always really enjoyed more of just kind of the imaginative almost role-playing elements of the game like for me magic was fun when i was playing cool cards and doing cool shit as opposed to necessarily winning um you know i i still to this day playing eternal i have trouble building decks for uh efficiency and not just like flavor and coolness um so i wasn't playing competitively didn't have a play group um and then i was living in this crappy situation and my cards were in a moldy basement and i ended up just throwing them away when i had to move out so i about threw away about three thousand cards that went back to 1994 uh yeah it was a bit impulsive um the mobile game came out mobile the ios magic i started playing that around 2013 until very recently when they uh we talked about it on the podcast <laughs> really really fucked over um you know some of their longtime players they promised that you know the new platform was going to be long you know was going to be ongoing and you could feel safe sinking money into it and then they were like no never mind we're going to do something else so that's why i started playing eternal and here we are all right, so I guess I'll do my little card game history as well. Uh, it'll it'll hook into to Akunza's story uh, at some point, just just to give you a heads up. So with me, uh, my my card game origins are very similar in that uh, I started playing around the the Pokemon slash Yu Gi Oh card game boom right around what ninety seven ninety eight would have been it. Uh, so I was really young. I was eight years old. I was, yeah, seven or eight years old. And, uh, you know, I, I first got into Pokemon, I guess, as seriously as an eight-year-old could. You know, there, there'd be on the weekends uh, at Toys R Us on Saturday mornings, you would go and you have your, your gym badge booklet and they'd give you a stamp for attending and uh, all these other cool promos and prizes. So I'd go every week with, with my brother, you know, my partner in crime, and we'd just play Pokemon, uh, you know, as competitively as you could as a bunch of really young children. So that was my first taste of, of uh, card games and uh, eventually grow, grew to really hate Pokemon because it was a lot of coin flipping and I just hated coin flipping. Like that was the reason I latched huh. on to, to, to wanting to get away from Pokemon. Um, and, and at the time, I was also playing a little bit of Yu-Gi-Oh just because it was popular and in the circles I was running in with, with other nerds, they, they'd have Yu-Gi-Oh decks and I'd dabble with it a bit, but I didn't enjoy it 
So I was like trying to figure out what other games to get into. Also, I, I was using my allowance to spend money on these packs. Like, uh, so every week I'd go once a week to the, eventually the, there was a card game slash comic book store at the mall here at Park City in Lancaster. And that's where we'd start going as I was getting closer to like middle school. Uh, once a week, Wednesday night, that, that was the night I'd go. Uh, and then they'd have various card game things going on. And I remember trying to decide what I would start playing after Pokemon. And I was like, my brother decided to try out Magic. And I was like, that looks kind of lame. I'm going to play Dragon Ball Z card game instead. So that was, that was where <laughs> I, I jumped ship to next. Uh, and that, that was what mostly occupied my card game playing time in middle school. And uh, like Coons, I, I tried tournaments. And unlike Coons, I actually did well. <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> Typical. Typical. Yeah, this was when I was at my, you know, I was in middle school, so I was at my cockiest and probably most insufferable levels. And I, I can't imagine the the terror I was inflicting upon other people just trying to have a nice time playing card games in, in a tournament in the middle of a Lancaster mall. And here I stroll in and it was probably just awful. But um, so I did like, okay, at these really small Dragon Ball Z trading card game tournaments. Um, and... <laughs> I played that until, you know, Dragon Ball Z comes to an end and GT comes out and they changed the rules and I hated the game after they changed the rules. So I just quit and got into video games. I just stopped playing card games altogether <laughs> throughout high school. And for most of college, I just played, you know, I got into Halo and then World of Warcraft and whatever else. And I just stopped playing card games altogether. I still have all my old cards, but never played Magic up to this point until, uh, my good friend Andrew Coons uh, started playing Magic the Gathering with, with uh, Keith and some other fellow people. And I tried to resist for a while. Uh, I think Coons can back me up on this. They, they were trying to get me to play. And I knew it just based on my background, I was like, look, guys, if I get into this game, you're trying to take it casually and just have fun. And I'm going to do that, too. And then I'm going to get way better and more serious than you guys. <laughs> and you're not going to like it. And that's basically what happened. I eventually gave in. I started playing magic a bit with them and I am never one to go like halfway or take something super casually. I got to just dive in super deep. So with magic, that's what I did. You know, after I, my first game, I was like, all right, how do I get better at this? What do I need to do? And I, I hit up a local game store. I started doing draft, which is a form of limited. It's, it's a different style of magic where, where we've mostly been talking about constructed, where you build your own deck ahead of time. Limited was way more appealing to me where you go, you show up for the event and you build a deck based on what you get out of your packs. So whether, whether it's via sealed or a draft, it doesn't really matter. I just want, I just, that style of game really appealed to me. And so, yeah, I, I got into magic jesus would be just six years ago at this point five or six years ago something like that it was i really didn't play it for honestly that long if when i think think back to it um but immediately i was pretty good at it and i really really enjoyed it uh, i just loved the aspects of both deck building and the competition and the strategy involved um, so I just, I was hooked immediately and it helped that I was also winning a lot, like right away. Like it was to the point where after the initial upfront costs of trying to like trying the first few drafts, 
I was just getting enough store credit at several different stores from winning over and over that I didn't really have to spend any money to play magic or things like that. So I, it made it easy just, oh, it's Friday night. I'm going to go to some store that I have, you know, $200 saved up on and splurge on a couple drafts or whatever, and then still have $200 when I leave or whatever. You know, it was <laughs> nice. Um, so it eventually got to a point where a year or two after that, uh, and I, I was playing Magic even more. A new game store had opened up in, in Lancaster that I really, really liked going to. It was just a, a really friendly environment, fun environment. A lot, the owners were really nice. Um, so that was making me play Magic even more. And it got to the point where my collection had built up enough that I could just kind of dive into Constructed uh, because I just had all the cards through playing Limited so much. So I decided, eh, all right, uh, you know, I've... I've, I'm getting pretty good at this game. I've been playing it now for a year or two. I'm really confident in my abilities. I've been playing online a bit more, and my my win rate's held up there as well. I guess I, I'm actually kind of good at this game. Let me try and make the Pro Tour. Just see, see what happens. So I, I decided to do that about two years ago, but in 2016, around, um, let's see, January or February 2016. Like it was really early 2016. I decided I'm going to try and make a semi-serious push towards this pro tour. I'd been in a play testing group with some other friends that had been trying to make a push. And I was kind of inspired by what the work they were doing and the format at the time looked really fun. So February, I started playing in what are called, if you're familiar with the uh, if you're not familiar with Magic the Gathering, there's there's kind of a series of events and trials you have to get to to get onto the Pro Tour, which is the premier event. You get a plane ticket, you get paid to go there, and you, you get fees, and it's huge prize money, and, and yada yada. But to get there, you've got to kind of beat a series of preliminary to- uh, tournaments. So the first of those is called the Preliminary Pro Tour Qualifier. So you have to win one, and they happen almost every weekend at... It, somewhere within an hour or two drive and you have to go there and win one. And these are often 50 to a hundred players. So you really got to spike an event and get lucky. And it can take people a lot of tries to, to win one. It took me two tries to, to win one because just as luck would have it, I was a lucky guy. So once you win one of those, you have to go to a regional pro tour qualifier um, and you have to get top four, at one of those based on the size. Based on this one, it was up in New York. You have to get top four. It was a lot of really good players. Um, so that was in, this, that was actually exactly two years ago, right? It was May, May two years ago. I go to that. I go undefeated through the Swiss portion of the event. So I, uh, and that was sealed. So I love sealed and it was great. So I make top eight and all I have to do is win one match in the top eight and I get a pro tour ticket to Australia and it was going to be great. And I lose that match. And, and I was like wow. really bummed about it. Uh, it was it sucked. Um, so and at that point, I'd been playing a lot of Magic, and I was kind of feeling burned out on it. And I got back from that trip to New York, and I go into my inbox and I in my email inbox, and I see that I have an invite to the Eternal closed beta, and I decided. Eh, I'll check this game out. And I basically quit Magic on the spot and started playing Eternal like all the time. Because <laughs> at the same time, it just so happened that, that the my local game store that I really liked closed down. So I didn't, to, to play Magic oh. at a store that I really liked, I would have had to travel 40 minutes to an hour. And I was just a drag to do it anymore. And I was like feeling burned out. So just this weird confluence of events happened around the, a similar time that it just serendipitously turned me into this 
Eternal Addict. Um, so I got really into that game, uh, but it was still in closed beta. It was still under NDA. Uh, it, it wasn't super popular, but I was really into it. And I was really excited about it, and I wanted to share it with more people. And I quickly became one of the better Eternal players. You know, they, they have a ranking system, and I was number one in both draft and ranked for a lot of the closed beta. Uh, I they they all the tournaments during closed beta were community run, and I won the first invitational uh, of the closed beta that I could participate in. So I was doing pretty well right off the bat in there. And eventually, I decided once they were going to lift the NDA that I would try streaming the game, uh, just based on the encouragement of friends and people I'd played with before when I had played a lot of Magic at the local game store. Everybody I always played with was like, man, I just love playing with you because you really talk things out. You you help me understand. I always feel like I get better at the game after I play you. Uh, I think you should try out streaming on Twitch. And I was always like, that's ridiculous. Nobody would want to watch me play a game. And then I tried it. And people wanted to watch me play games, it turned out, and it kind of went from there. It was uh, So that that's where I'm at now, uh, where I, I stream myself playing Eternal pretty often. I got Twitch Partnership, which I was really proud of, so I make a little money off of that. I don't really play Magic that much anymore, but I, I know someday I'll get back into it. It's just, it's not really a matter of if, but when. So that, that's where I'm at today. So why... So you were playing games for a long time before you got into Magic. What was keeping you out of Magic? That's that's a good question. It was it was just something that once I like quit the other card games, I just wasn't in. Like I didn't know anybody that was playing card games. I just somehow never like got put on my radar to to just try it out. Hmm. I just decided to sort of avoid that and just play video games right it just it's one of those things where i went i went from playing card games to playing halo and halo 2 super seriously and then world of warcraft everybody goes through that phase and then league of legends is the one after that you know it just one thing leads to another and i never was playing physical games until i got reintroduced to it by by coons so it's it's, it's just interesting because it's the exact almost the exact opposite of my experience of like I started with Magic, and then I would see these other games start yeah. to pop up, and I was like, no, why would I play those? Those are cheap knockoffs of this really yeah. cool game. It was um, the and like I never touched anything else until yeah, Eternal. Yeah, it was the uh, impressionable years of my being eight, nine, ten year old, and it was just like, well. Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z are all that matter. I don't really care about whatever this Magic the Gathering game is. You know, they're not the cards aren't as cool looking and stuff. You know, I can't I can't play I'm, as I'm Majin not Spopovich in Magic the Gathering. <laughs> yeah. I'm not interested in dragons unless yeah. they're granting wishes. Yeah, I think that the franchise nature of those games is really what helped sell them because you're not only playing the game but you're watching the cartoons you're playing with the action figures you're seeing the movies you know all these different things are built up you're playing the video games mm -hmm. all those things where magic was just magic you know and it sort of felt like an older yeah. kid thing in some ways at least when i was getting like oh that's like because the cards are a little you know some of the some of the card art is pretty dead yeah. metal you know and you're like oh that's yeah. like you know that's like that's like for like the you know the, those kids over there or whatever even though for all intents and purposes, you were those kids, but <laughs> yes, um, yes, you were. Uh, but it just felt like it was a little more like when you went to the game store, it was like the kids were playing Pokemon and the adults were playing Magic. It's sort of like my experience. I was like, oh, that game's harder. That game's more expensive. You know, these kind of things you get when you're like 
a younger person that you didn't actually investigate. Like, oh, it's probably a pretty similar economic uh, setup. But that was sort of all my, always my impression, which kept me out of it. Although, you know, now later in life, looking back, it's like things like the art of magic is just so much leagues above what the other card games were doing, you know, of course. See, and I think that was actually might have been what maybe c- captured my imagination imagination so much about magic was that it was its own thing is that it wasn't connected to any other like lore or uh any other ip so it was you know because i had friends who like played like the, the star wars game and it was just like that's just like stills from the movies yep. on the cards <laughs> like it doesn't like i've been there like whereas magic like new stuff would come out and and I was also playing before they had all of their like comic books and novels and all this stuff that like expanded on it. So like all you knew about this world was the art on the cards and the the flavor text, which was just so the for for uh, non card weirdos, um, the card has you know text on it about what the card does, you know rule based mechanical stuff, and then some cards will also have what they call flavor text, which is has nothing to do with the game, but it might be like a quote that just gives some more background to the characters or what's going on or just something, something cool. Um, but like the, you know, when that was all I got about the world of magic, there was so many things for my brain to fill in, which is, again, that comes down to like me and Andrew, like our differences of what we like. Like I like a lot of holes in the story for me to make stuff up in. Andrew likes to, likes to know every little facet of every little thing and likes it all to be knowable and mapped out. What? No. <laughs> uh, so I guess I, I have the question of, of for everyone here is, is like, why are, why are they fun? Or is it just in a, is it just a pure addiction kind of thing? Cause there's a certain level where like you were, you were describing it earlier. I mean, these things are like crack for some people, right? Oh yes. No, I literally, when I stopped, um, kind of mid college after college, like it was because I was like, this is dangerous. Like not only am I spending all of my money on this, but when I'm not playing it, I'm thinking about it. Like it just, it, it, it does feel like an addiction, but so in comparison to other games, like, you know, maybe board games or Dungeons and Dragons or video games. Like what about this? Like, why is there appeal? Why has it had such a staking power? Uh, at least in, in, to you guys. Uh, one of the things that I love about uh, especially Magic, but, but card games in general, is that every game, you can play this the same two decks against each other game after game after game. And because there, it's a card game, because there's some variance built in and with, with drawing cards off the top of your deck and playing them in certain orders, that they almost every time you play, it's it creates its own story, its own experience. Um, in terms of you, you can think back years and think about that one game that you had against this one person and something insane happened. And, uh, the, the card games can lend themselves to just like these natural storytelling moments that are, are really dynamic and, and generally fun, right? Right. Asking the question, what, why is something fun? You you can go really deep. It it means something to a lot of different people, (laughs) but that's also a big part of why these card games uh, are fun is because, everybody can latch on to something that they like about the games. You just talked about how you like the art or the flavor text. Some people just like trying to figure out the best deck possible in a format and win a lot with it. Other people like to do really cool stuff. Uh, just like, here's this wild, crazy combo I came up with that nobody else has done. And and that's the real uh, appeal to card games is just, here's a pile of things and you can do 
anything you want with them, go figure it out. Like it's, there's almost a sandbox, uh, uh, like style of gameplay that you can attribute to card games that you can't really say about, uh, monopoly where you 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 it's like all right uh you can make some house rules and they'll undoubtedly make the game worse like free parking but knock yourself out you know there's not a whole lot of wiggle room where uh with with card games it's all right there is a rule book but you can kind of make your own rule book if you want to and that's what a lot of kids did growing up and it was more just about here's these really cool cards let's go explore what you can do with them I, I would, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent on that sandbox nature. Like I just, the way that you can just, I, I used to be, I would have all my cards in, in those binders with the pages and I would just flip through them over and over again, because the minute you get bored of what you're currently playing, there's thousands of other cards that you can start to think about like, Ooh, what if I made a deck around this card? And like, there's always some new little lily pad of interest and attention to, you know, to jump, to jump to. And one of the most interesting things I've noticed in eternal is, um, the way that the meta. So again, rough summary, the, the meta game of, you know, what are most people playing? What are the decks that are, you know, a lot of people are playing? And then how are people responding to that? And what are they playing? And how does it shift over time? Um, is that even when there's no changes in the games, like no new cards have been introduced or no, you know, um, balance changes have happened, the meta shifts, and it almost happens on a monthly basis when they kind of reset the rankings. But when nothing is changing outside the game, right? When when we're not changing any cards, when we're not, um, you know, introducing anything new, the most efficient and successful decks should always be the most efficient and successful decks. But it seems like people just jump off of a deck that's performing very well and start playing other things on a massive scale because they're getting bored with one and are moving to another. And the fact that people are in these games like they're driven by what is fun to play and what is interesting to play as much as they are driven by you know what you know ups my score on the leaderboard i think is part and parcel to part of the appeal of this of like there's always some new thing to explore some new thing to try and your experience of playing one deck versus another deck is very very different it can almost feel feel like you're playing a completely different game when you switch from one one kind of deck to another I would agree with a lot of that. I, I'm sort of, uh, it's hard because I'm not a good deck builder. So mm -hmm. for you non-card nerds out there, uh, the big thing that people, you know, can say with a derogatory tone is, oh, you're a filthy net decker, right? So this is this idea of kind of, I mean, I, I, I'd be curious to see what it, what sort of like, you know, to Greg's explanation of the meta game, what the meta of, magic looked like pre i mean the internet existed i guess but like pre-widespread use of the internet or a lot of people being on or having access to that i wonder what that have looked like and how slow to evolve and obviously the internet being able to share not only be able to get the cards you need via the internet those sort of things which i want to come back to talking about some of the economics of this craziness but also just being able to like share strategies or share deck lists or share you know training things and things like that like I am sort of a, I'm not particularly good at games, like from an intuitive basis. I'm not usually good at figuring stuff out myself. I don't know why, because I'm not a dumb guy. I just, it's like my brain's just like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know how to do it. Um, Corey, what do I do? That's like, that's my strategy, right? But like, that is my strategy is like with the internet now, 
I can go on and read about why things are good and why things aren't. And like, that's how I learn. I'm a history guy, right? I read books. Like I'm, I'm a wizard. That's how I don't, I'm not a sorcerer. So use <laughs> to, to mix some metaphors here. Seriously, that's my class. <laughs> you're using your using D and D metaphors to explain your yeah. approach to yeah. magic and eternal. We're we're getting too many layers deep here. <laughs> that's my approach to everything mm-hmm. in life. To be fair, but uh, yeah. So being able to do that now, um, that's makes it a lot easier for me to play than it maybe did ten or fifteen years ago. Uh, so I enjoy that. I enjoy, and the convergence now with digital CCGs of I actually just really disliked the like the physical nature of cards because I was always nervous about <laughs> hurting them because they had you know do have they they can have intense values at different points. Uh, I also just hated like well I already built this deck and then if I have to like take it apart I have to like go find all the other cards and like sort them out and like have these different boxes and things and like I kind of hated all of that so the ability to do that in a digital format is much much better and uh, I can kind of spend more time learning than just like committing physical labor to my decks and yeah digital card games can definitely like spoil us in that regards like i know after playing a total for so long and then occasionally going back and playing magic with some friends for a draft or whatever and it's like wait i have to shuffle my deck and sleeve it up and every time (laughs) we play it takes like 10 minutes to set up and i gotta manually keep track of my life total with a with these dice and pen and paper and it's just like digital card games kind of obliterate all that nonsense and and let you kind of just focus on the game which you know is nice but at the same time like having your deck that you just carry around in a box is like this this symbol of everything you are is it also has a real appeal to it and that that can come out in uh a lot of different ways in card games going back to why it's so popular, why it is what you make it. One of the big things that has helped magic, the gathering, especially stick around so long is all the different ways you play. We, we talked about, you know, how there's limited and constructed, but within constructed in magic, there's hundreds of different ways to play it as well. So depending on what kind of style you like to play, you can do your 60 card deck, standard like tournament spikiness uh and, I, and i'm using the word spike here that this actually ties in that uh i'll probably mention a few other types but uh there's this kind of landmark article that one of the lead designers of magic uh mark rosewater amazing mind uh i really recommend anything he puts out if you're interested in card games reading up on or listening to uh but he he uh kind of expanded this idea of you know, the types of players that are into this game and everybody kind of falls into different categories where there's the, they started with Timmy, Johnny and Spike. So Spike is super serious, hardcore, just wants to win. Johnny wants to do cool stuff. Timmy loves big monsters. They expanded it to Vorthos, which cares about the lore and the art. <laughs> Melvin, which cares about the elegance of card design in itself. And and you can go on and on about mm. these these uh, different profiles and ideas. And and I think that and they design cards for all of these types of people. And that's a really important thing to keep magic going is keeping in mind everybody gets something out of this game and we can appeal to all of them at the same time because of how many cards we're making and because of how you can combine them in so many different ways and play them in so many different formats and do so many different things with them. 
that idea of the elegance of card design, like I realized, like maybe I always thought I was like a, a Timmy or a Johnny, like because I just or a Vorthos <laughs> even, like where I just like I just I'm not really. Of course, everybody wants to win, and it feels good to win, but like to me, there was always something about like something much cooler about winning with an all black deck that was, you know, had a lot of flavor to it. Um, but that idea of the elegance of card design, and I think that moving to digital, and I because I'm you know kind of moved from magic and even the digital magic was just it's exactly like the pen and, or the you know the physical game just online um but moving to eternal the elegance that can be incorporated into into card design in a digital form i think is so much higher than in the physical form because there's a computer back there who's making the rules work whereas in magic uh, tabletop, the physical game, you have to write on the card in very clear words how it all works and like what are the exact process of rules to make this effect happen. Whereas like in Eternal, um, I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit. There's a card called Inquisitor Macto and um, there's a mechanic in Eternal called Revenge that basically says when your creature dies... Um, rather than going into the graveyard, which is where dead creatures go, it gets shuffled back into the top 10 cards of your deck, and then when you draw it, you play it for free, essentially. That's how revenge works. It works once, and then it dies like a normal creature. But um, this card, Inquisitor Macto, um, number one, you know, he's kind of a dark, wicked character uh, from the art and just from the presentation of the card, but the only rule text on it is, Macto's revenge never ends which is such a cool way of saying how this effect is going to work um, and just gives so much flavor to the character and it's such an elegant card. Um, but if you were going to do that in a physical game, you'd have to say, you know, you'd have to come up with some way to word that out all kind of game lawyerly so that somebody who's just playing that game, you know, across a kitchen table can make that effect work. But in a digital game, you can just write things out in an elegant way because the computer is... Yeah, it's it's funny because magic started out that way where it was not templated, not (laughs) structured. It was just, well, the card does what it says. And then they realized, all right, that's way too open to interpretation. We need to structure it. And it eventually became the structured, templated, well-worded thing it is today. And as you said, the digital card game can kind of afford to sort of, you know, have looser templating because it's like, well, you'll figure out what it does when you play it because the computer rules engine will make sure it does what it's supposed to do. And uh, it's really fun to see. It. It, it, that's something that, that Hearthstone does decently well, too, although uh, the, the where it can really run into problems is when it becomes maddeningly inconsistent. And uh, Eternal has luckily done a pretty good job of staying consistent between cards, although there's been a few troublesome ones. So, so there still needs to be rigid templating, I think, underneath but eternal's done a good job of having some really flavorful lines of text that also become impactful in the rules like you said revenge never ends is one there's also leave a witness which is one of my favorites which is you know it it kills Mm -hmm. everything else but one person survives and it says it in a a really like flavorful way in terms of uh the mechanic because it's based off mentor so you're supposed to mentor a student so basically the the flavor behind this is like i'm going to teach you a lesson on how to kill everything and you're going to be the one that survives (laughs) and you can pass on your knowledge later on and it's really cool I mean, I will say that magic is oh, is yeah. still capable of of some real elegance. The card that comes to mind 
um, is from many sets ago called <laughs> Progenitus, which is just this giant Hydra god. And the, and, and the only text on the card is protection from everything, which is just a great way to use their, their templating because protection, usually you have protection from dragons or protection from one of the colors of magic in the game, which prevents, you know, you know, it works like you would think protection, but this card just says protection from everything, which is just so final and such a great way to, you know, not only make a powerful card, but, you know, have so much flavor just in three words. It's, it's such an elegant design. So I wanted to dip back in a little bit to something that we've you know touched upon. We touched upon the sort of addictive nature and sort of the money sink that these games can be for a lot of people. So what's your guys thoughts on like the economy of these games and, uh, I'm going to try and ignore the sort of like, I mean, in a lot of ways, a lot of ways, these were precursors to, you know, the modern day digital loot box, right? Like the idea of opening things and like, you know, the gambling nature of it a little bit. But as far as the actual economics itself of, of how much this stuff can cost, and I think some listeners would be, would be interested to hear like, so Corey, you were saying there's a couple different, uh, you know, types of magic play, for example, and even within constructed, you can have what are some of the types I'm trying to remember, like, like, uh, mm-hmm. modern constructed limited or not limited, but, um, what the, what's the, what's, the, what's it called standard. when it's like the current sets yeah, standard. So you've got these different things and how the economics of those are all very different. And then the sort of the idea of like, especially with the internet, how, I don't know how to describe like, you know, I guess, uh, the yeah. finances of cards and you know, trading of cards and like almost like a stock market that's surrounding. Yeah, cards th- that was one of the more jarring things, honestly, when I got back into card games is like there was sort of this, I don't know, almost 10 year year gap between me me playing card games again back into the magic, I guess even more than that. And, you know, when I was a kid in elementary school, sure, the Internet like existed. But if I was in the playground with other kids and I had a cool Pokemon card and I wanted one of theirs, we just figured out a trade that worked based on how cool and we thought both cards were we just made it work uh and now when it came back to magic it was like all right i want to trade for that card and then both people like whip out their phones and look up how much these cards are worth and try and make it even based on monetary value and that was like really weird to me when i got back into the game and now now you're sort of just used to it because the economy is a huge part of it it's another reason why the game has lasted as long as it has is because it's a collecting it's, it's you know it's a collectible card game it's a trading card game so while we talk about how people love to play it there are people out there that literally just collect it and for uh you to put out a product that you want the collectors to be safe to keep buying in the future you need to kind of let them know it's going to have value going forward um, and magics that's something they've struggled with for a long time. There's a lot of controversial topics that we will dive into there. Um, but it's important to know just that there is a cost to this game, you know, up front, other than just buying some packs and things like that. A lot of players, especially that just want to build decks, will just buy the cards directly on the open market. They won't buy packs and hope that they open it. You, you just skip the gambling part because that's more expensive in the long run and just find a deck you want to build, buy all the cards individually and build it. And and you were asking about what the price can look like. Um, and there's always a huge variance to that depending on the format and the deck you want to play. But 
typically standard decks are going to run in the three to five hundred dollar range. Um, that's the rotating format. Mm. Uh, so while they they might be the cheapest deck costs up front, you have to update them way more often than uh, non rotating formats. So so the idea is uh, to to encourage players to keep buying new cards. There's a premier format that's constantly uh, introducing new sets and chopping off old sets so that it's always changing, right? Introducing that metagame churn. Because if you print a new set and that set has to con- compete with 20,000 other cards, you either have to make that set totally brokenly strong and then you introduce power creep to the game and make all of your old cards obsolete, or you just have separate formats where you always have a format where new cards will be relevant, and occasionally one of those new cards will be relevant in super old formats too. And that's what uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast has done with, with Magic the Gathering. So that's standard. That's the rotating format. Then there's Modern and Legacy, which are both non-rotating format, and there's also Commander and a lot of others. And depending on the format, you know, Modern decks are typically around $1,000 legacy decks oh, can God. just be way more than that like several thousand dollars and then vintage you know then you're introducing power nine you're talking some cards are on the order of a couple thousand dollars by themselves so uh the the range of costs can be very very wide depending on what you're trying to do or you could just be like me when i first got into the game and it's like all right i'm gonna go have a draft at the local game store where you open a few packs spend like 12 bucks and and have fun for a few hours and and get a maybe a few cards back out of it but those those costs are if you want a like right. competitive level uh you know I'm, I'm gonna take this to a tournament and try to win obviously if if you just want to have some fun with your friends you can run to target and buy a starter deck mm-hmm. for 12.99 and, and yeah there, there's you know, there's great products out there if you want to just get into magic with with friends where there are as you said pre-constructed decks for 20 25 bucks whatever and and wizards is trying to come out with some others, uh, even more competitive pre-constructed decks that, that I think uh, they're, they're taking some steps in the right direction to help the upfront cost of getting into the game. Because once you hit that upfront cost and, and get over it and you can actually compete, like, it's fine. You know, there, there's this whole idea in card games where it's not necessarily pay to win, it's pay to compete is what people try and mask it as, but it is, mm. you know, in a way also pay to win. But there's uh, other ways to to play. Now, of course, on the digital card game side of things, it can be quite a bit cheaper. Um, I, I suppose you guys have, have played enough Eternal to know that you can get really far without ever spending a cent on it, especially not uh, $300 or $500 or whatever. You could, uh, at least in Eternal, it's, it truly is, I think, free to play. Things like Hearthstone to keep up with, you're probably going to have to spend some real money on it unless you play a ton. And even if you play a ton, you're probably going to have to spend some money to keep up. So it all, it all depends on the game, though. Yeah, but I think that I will say that I think that the, you know, having come up in, you know, playing Magic in, you know, really bonding with the game in a mm-hmm. entirely pre-internet age, but also even when I was a more active player, um, you know, the big, you know, online card exchanges didn't exist and there weren't huge libraries online of, you know, uh, deck yeah. lists that you could download, but I will say that I do feel like there is something that's lost in having a local play group and that is your card pool and trading around within that card pool and the subtle strategies of, um, 
you know, knowing that, man, if I can trade away, because not only if I trade away a card away from Andrew, not only is that a card that I have, but now oh, yeah. Andrew can't and that, lose that card. <laughs> if he doesn't know what he has, maybe it's worth it just to <clears throat> disarm him. Um, but now that anybody with, you know, enough money can, you know, just buy the cards online very quickly, very cheaply um, and build the deck they want to build. In some ways, I think that makes play a lot more fun for people because, it's not as much fun to play a game where you have 50% of the deck you want and the other half the cards in there mm-hmm. are just some bullshit you had to put in because you don't have everything. Um, but also, I think it, it takes a little bit away. Um, and maybe I'm being nostalgic because, you know, as we were kind of make, getting our show notes together and thinking about, you know, our history with the game and going back and thinking about, like, um, there is something that is lost uh, you know, when you're all sitting around the table in somebody's dad's basement, um, you know, actually playing games and having to make eye contact during the games and trying to, you, you're actually bluffing with each yeah. other about what's going to happen next. Uh, and maybe, maybe I miss that. Maybe I miss being 17. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a little bit of yeah, both. magic is very different now from when it first came out. It's, it's grown and evolved over the years because of, you know, the internet and the economy. Cause, cause as you said, when it first came out or when it was even first designed, Richard Garfield thought that's the typical experience people were going to have was they would buy a few packs, essentially build a sealed deck, right? Like buy maybe a starter deck plus a few packs. And those were all the cards you would ever have. And they, they honestly thought like, well, how do we keep this game fresh other than when we come out with new expansions or whatever uh, in the meantime? And and one of the original mechanics of Magic was anti, where you would, you would before a game yeah. in your playgroup, the idea was you would ante up a card from your deck, and if you lost, you lost that card. And now your opponent has that card, so now their deck gets updated, and that was how they would keep it fresh. Like they, they thought the same thing that you would where, you know, that was a way to introduce people, new cards was kind of force them to trade it between each other. And obviously that's totally been gotten thrown out because could you imagine anting up a card that's like worth $300 and just losing it on a, like it would be a nightmare because of how <laughs> the economy and, and everything else has taken over. And it's this whole weird subculture of uh, especially magic the gathering, but card games in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I find, you know, you're telling me story, Corey's Corey, when you were, uh, there's like a whole, like a whole stock market around it. Like, so let's say that, you know, there's a, a in the standard rotating set, um, they start releasing spoiler cards, you know, showing images of the next set that's coming out that will include this set. And if Corey's smart enough, he can look at a card and say, oh, that pairs really well with this card. I'm going to buy up a mm-hmm. bunch of this card online. And then in a month when that set comes out and that's a required card in a new standard deck, that you know that price just spiked like 30 40 bucks a card yeah yeah you've done that, I, right? I don't go super hardcore like or never did like other speculators did because i you know didn't have the money to just buy out entire stocks of certain cards but uh i know one time that really stood out was uh back with this was a little over a year yeah two years ago right when battle of zendikar came out or right around that time and what this was was a return to an, an old plane that had these big monsters called the Eldrazi and it eventually ended up really warping the one of the premier formats mod, modern where a bunch of decks wanted uh, to play these new Eldrazi type creatures but there were also old cards that 
helped make your Eldrazi stronger, and they all exploded in price. And I happened to get in on that deck a few months beforehand, and some cards that I bought up for like a dollar ended up being worth fifty dollars. And and you just you know flipped <laughs> them and bought other things with them and things like that. And that and that can happen. Uh, a lot of cards just naturally grow in price over time if you just sit on them because of scarcity versus demand. Like like there's a lot of economics that that go on behind the scenes. I think it's all a little ridiculous. I really don't like that side of magic, honestly. Uh, but it, it exists and it's it's fascinating. It really is. And that's I, again, you know, because I'm coming at this from somebody yeah. who kind of fell off before the internet. Um, like even the idea of being able to speculate on a set, like because another experience that, like, I, I thinking back of like an experience that's kind of lost for you know modern connected players is um and maybe you guys had similar experiences when you were you know in the early days of, of pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh. but like when you're playing against someone and they play yeah. a card you've never seen before and like that feeling of like what the fuck is that and like but that's gone and because mm-hmm. you know the previews are released and the spoilers come out and um, and even on day one, the set comes out and the card list is online and I'm going to go and look at all of them. You know, when the new set drops in Eternal, like, you know, I'm going <laughs> and reading everyone in detail. I'm not waiting till I encounter it in the game. But there was something, dare I say, magical about those surprises um, that you just yeah, can't have. Now, companies are trying to, to kind of reinstill those ideas like like. Direwolf Digital with Eternal doesn't fully spoil the set before it comes out in a lot of times, or with the latest adventure, there are a couple hidden cards that you couldn't see in the collection until you completed it Mm -hmm. to kind of uh, save you from lore spoilers and things like that. So I like that, you know, they're trying to recreate parts of that nostalgia, but but as you said, nothing's going to be the same as when you were, you know, when I was at the playground playing with other kids and somebody actually had a foil Charizard. Like you'd never seen one before you thought <laughs> it was made up. You turned like stories on the news about it. And then like somebody, you know, or like actually <laughs> in Yu-Gi-Oh! House, Seto Kaiba was like, there's only three blue eyes, white dragons in the world. And you kind of felt that way, except, you know, it came in a starter <laughs> deck eventually. But uh, yeah, that, that does <laughs> that part has kind of uh, uh, part of it is, you know, the internet, but part of it is also just the, the people that play the game have also gotten older, just have more money. Also we're holding on to collections. Also mm-hmm. certain cards never get reprinted. So they're super rare. Like they actually are just legitimate. Rare. There's some magic cards that I have never seen in person in my life because of that. Um, but I, I'm sure at some point I will, but at the same time with, with new cards that come out, yeah, as you said, the, the mystery isn't, isn't quite there anymore. So I want to take a minute for people, um, to sort of talk a little bit about like what are some of the big digital card games out there? We talk a lot about Eternal, um, and maybe even just sort of in general, sort of the differences between what are some of the determining like factors or defining factors that like if someone was going to choose a game now to get into, uh, whether it's in print or in digital form, uh, what would you guys say are like some of like the defining features of like do you like this versus that or like? broad mechanical things that might be different you know we can talk about things like economy of things like you said Corey, like eternal is a very generous game when it comes to the amount of cards it gives you and the currency and you know very quickly you can have a good deck without having to spend any money or grind too much 
Uh, where Hearthstone, it, it is not that way at all in my experience, which is why I stopped playing. So I was like, I can't do anything in this game. I'll get like a, a, one pack a week in internal. I got like four packs a day. Uh, so, but like there's a ton of, I mean, digital card games are really popular. You look on Steam, my whole Steam thing is just like digital card game after digital card game, yeah. with tiles of advertising. But what are some of the ones you think are, are good, bad? Like, what would all right, you so I'll, I'll say this up front. I have not played every digital card game out there because that's impossible. There's just so many, uh, but I've, I've played a good number of them. Eternal is my number one, but there are certainly plenty of reasons to play other ones. Hearthstone was the really the first one to really put digital card games on the map from, from Blizzard. Um, and it's a, it's a, I think it's an expensive one to get into competitively, but it's very fun. It's super polished. It's very exciting. It's very good at, creating stories from game to game um now if you're if you're a player that really likes open-ended deck building and uh has wants to have a deck that fits your personality hearthstone's not the game for you i think i think there's better options out there because it's class-based so uh you know deck building's a little more on rails in that game than compared to something open-ended like magic or or uh, eternal which is uh faction slash mana land-based whereas in in hearthstone you're assuming the role of a specific character like uh anduin the priest or or a uh, gromash the warrior and so how they produce cards in that game is there's a pool of neutral cards that anybody can play but then warriors can play warrior cards and shamans can play shaman cards and there's a range of cards that you can put in your deck but with each expansion you kind of look at the spoiler and it's like well all right, if you're if you're a mage, you're going to either play this archetype or this archetype, and there's not really much wiggle room. So I I think from a for for me as somebody that really likes to express their creativity through deck building, that was one thing I didn't like with Hearthstone, and I also had some gameplay issues. That being said, um, the the game is is nice to get into. It's a nice experience. It's, it's a very big and popular game, so you don't have to worry about it going away anytime soon. Um, so I think that's the the big appeals to hearthstone um other games as far as big games that are notable uh gwent is one that's based on the witcher uh that is really unlike a lot of other games uh, other trading card games out there uh in that it's a lot lower variance your deck size is much smaller uh your variance from game to game is uh, a lot lower it's more based on almost bluffing mechanics um but again, not crazy depth in terms of deck building. And I also think it runs into real problems of the metagame getting stale quickly, I've seen. Uh, other good ones are Elder Scrolls Legend mm. plays pretty similarly to Hearthstone, except it has almost two boards instead of one. But but it, it plays similarly. It's also made by Direwolf Digital. And uh, that, that's based off of the Elder Scrolls world, uh, Morrowind and Skyrim and all of that. Uh, so that, that game plays similarly to Hearthstone, maybe a little more competitively balanced, a little more flexibility in deck building. Uh, Duelist is a card game, but it's also like a tactical isomorphic game where you play a card, but that card is something that actually goes on to 
a board like checkers or chess and and you can then move that unit around and they have certain properties uh i Mm. played that for a while early on in its in its lifetime and and i liked it because the games had a lot of action and then they changed a lot of the rules where it kind of slowed it down and and changed some things up but i think it's a, a cool take on the idea in the genre um another really big one is shadowverse uh which you can play on Steam. That is the one game out there that can really rival Eternal in terms of how generous it is. It's more generous up front, but in the long run, less generous in terms of trying to be a free-to-play style game. Uh, the big issue with that game, other than it's it's also sort of Hearthstone style, is that it's very anime style in terms of art like a lot of scantily clad women and stuff like that that if you want to try and play it in public you've got to have a really weird personality to not be ashamed to do so i would think so i i never played it just because <laughs> i took one look at it and i was like this art style and motif is not for me um but maybe that is for you and you know <laughs> check it out because there's a lot of players that do enjoy that game it's probably the second most popular digital card game out there if you're not counting magic online uh as well uh magic online is also i guess an option uh where they and and magic arena now so magic the gathering is the physical card game and they actually have an online version called magic online where it it has its own economy you buy cards individually or you can buy packs it's it's virtually the same as paper magic it's the problem with magic is that it was not designed to be played on computers. Um, So it runs into a lot of problems in terms of how fun it is to play. It can be a real chore to figure out how to play it. If you've never played Magic before, I don't really recommend trying Magic Online as your first foray into it. Um, They are developing Magic Arena right now, which is sort of a successor to Magic Duels, the the game that Greg lamented its death. Um, And they're trying to take this one more seriously emphasis on trying i have not been super impressed with it i have a lot of issues with the the economy but it is magic but i I think one of the biggest reasons to play magic at least even the physical game is the community social aspect to it like it is also a very well designed game it's a really fun game to play but one of the appeals to playing magic is is that it's this physical thing you have to hang out with friends you have to interact with people and you and you can kind of create these organic stories in person Uh, and then yeah finally eternal card game is the card game of choice of all three of us so we're slightly biased on that but i really like it because it's generous it truly is free to play direwolf digital came out and said that's one of our goals no joke and honestly you can build a competitive deck very quickly and even if you don't build a competitive deck very quickly there's a lot of different game modes that you can play without ever having to spend a cent on the game they add verse ai modes you can constantly uh build your collection at the pace you want to build it at there's all sorts of different modes to try out they're doing a really good job of emphasizing that aspect of card games despite it being so early on in its life there are a lot of different formats to try out i think the draft is really the draft format's really fun in that i think it has the best limited experience compared to any of these other digital card games and as a player that loves playing limited more than constructed that was what really attracted to me it just so happened the constructed aspect of it was amazing as well um it is a 
really open-ended in its deck building. There, there's so there's such a variety of strategies and different decks that you can build. Uh, it's much less on rails than anything else out there because of the deck size and the breadth of options that a uh, mana base or color base system affords you. Right, Magic. One of the greatest things about Magic was that they got right up off the bat was there's five colors and you can combine them however you want. And each color sort of has its own personality of what it can do. The color pie was a really foundational, amazing thing that magic did before anybody else. And, uh, eternal liberally borrowed from those concepts because, you know, if it ain't broke, (laughs) why try and fix it? And they did some good things in terms of fixing some of the problems with color pie imbalance and, and, trying to fix the resource system in itself. Um, and I think they did a, a really good job with it that uh, they should be commended for. So uh, that that's my spiel about a lot of card games that are out there. I don't know if I missed any. I'm sure I, I did. But uh, yeah, you guys can take it from there. <laughs> uh, that's I, helpful. I, I, would, I think another thing that's great about Eternal for you know for new players and well i guess for any player is that i think the dire wolf the developer puts a lot of work into making sure that the game continues to be fun um whereas a lot of um you know card games can there can be strategies these are very prevalent in magic where you know my strategy is to essentially <clears throat> lock down my opponent so that they can't play spells they can't play lands they can't do anything and we're just going to wind down the clock essentially until i win and setting up that strategy is a lot harder in eternal and i think that's by design because if you're the person who's facing down one of those kind of lockdown control decks mm-hmm. that is not a fun game for you and i think that Eternal limits a lot of the options to make sure that some of those strategies that are just really, really a bummer to play against are not that viable. Um, And I think that they continue to include cards that have a lot of personality and a lot of interesting, fun effects um, that, you know, it's... you know, even if you want to play it very competitively, um, it's a game that wants to be a good time to play, not just a yeah. Um, a really interesting thing, thing with digital card games at large that is completely unique to them because it can't happen in physical card games is that you can change the cards. Imagine the Gathering. If a card is a problem, like if it's simply they find out it's just simply too strong and it's broken, all you can do is ban it. You can't change that card. It's already gone to print. It is what it is. Um, so you you introduce this really feel-bad moment of players collected this card. It turns out it's too strong. People spent money on it, and now they can't do anything with it. In digital card games, you can kind of give it a little slap on the wrist and take it down a notch, make it a little bit weaker. And I think Direwolf Digital's done a really good job. They're, they're balanced team in terms of nerfing problematic cards, but not nerfing it too much. And they also... Uh, and I would say this is actually pretty unique to Eternal in terms of digital card game balance. They buff a lot of cards. They make cards better um, so that you try them out. You may have dismissed it initially, and now it's a little bit stronger, and you think, mm, let's try it. And it may have already been strong enough, but by giving you that nudge, it, they kind of nudge players in the right direction to, to explore different things and introduce turn, where I know coming from Hearthstone, Blizzard was usually way too late to 
uh, nerf cards. They nerfed like over nerfed all the time, and they basically never ever buffed cards. And uh, so that that's one thing that really annoyed me when I did play Hearthstone was I just thought their balance team was a bunch of loons, and uh, I still feel that way. Like <laughs> you know, they're good at making a fun game, but they're not good at making a competitive game. And again, that's my opinion. They're it's, it's an incredibly successful game for a lot of reasons, and I would not just simply say never play Hearthstone. There, there are some real redeeming features to it. So obviously Hearthstone's huge and, and digital card games as a whole are really gaining in popularity. I mean, whenever I go on Twitch, I see Hearthstone yeah. being one of the top streamed games. I mean, uh, and it's funny because you wouldn't think of it as a digital card game as being the most exciting thing to watch as opposed to, you know, first person shooter or, a, you know, League of Legends or any of those kind of style of games. But it really has taken off. And I think that sort of like the commentary that you can do and the strategy behind it is really helpful. But I have a question. Do you guys think that, you know, digital digital CCGs are going to overtake, you know, paper CCGs and sort of uh, we see those shrinking in markets? I think like there's that. room for both to, to coexist, especially as digital card games like try and, uh, you know, be free to play. Uh, well, one of the appeals to them is that they – can translate very well to a mobile platform because you're just clicking on cards and moving it. It's turn-based, things like that. So I think that's one of the big footholds digital card games has established. And obviously, uh, you know, physical card game manufacturers think they can coexist because Wizards of the Coast is finally pumping money into other digital card game ventures like Magic uh, Arena. And, and again, I think the big appeal and why Magic will be around, and it has been around for 25 years, is... You know, people aren't sitting around just because there's some investor sunk cost fallacy going on that's hooking everybody in. That's part of the equation, but it's also just this social thing that digital card games can't ever provide, where going to Friday Night Magic or going to a big Grand Prix or whatever, there's nothing else out there like it other than if you play Magic the Gathering, and I think that will help it stick around for a long time. It, it might shrink a little. I, I don't doubt that, but I think it'll always have a, a reasonable foothold on the market. Makes sense. I wanted to just uh, give a brief aside into if, if all this sounds like <laughs> too much, just like, what are these nerds talking about? Uh, but you like the idea of playing a card game. Um, they're sort of like, almost like Halfway mm -hmm. to CCJs, CCGs, what I would call. Um, you all know that I like board games, and there's a couple different formats of card games that are not full-on open packs, CCG-style games where a lot of consistent economic input is required to, you know, get more cards or, or play. There's, there's sort of like mm -hmm. some self-contained CCG-style games where you can, you know, you get a box that has 300 cards in it, and that's your cards. And you and your friends every time can sit down and make decks with it. And do it. I think the Game of Thrones game is a pretty popular one. Um, you know, those are very, and they have expansions and things, but it's much more streamlined. Obviously not as not as big or as diverse, but it's a nice sort of halfway ground for like, you know, we don't want to get into this and we don't want to have the yeah. option for us to go off the rails and start buying, you know, <laughs> decks for $500. Like here's a $50 investment that we can play and have a lot of replay value. So that's a cool option. There's also games that are, a couple more steps removed, which are things like um, uh, deck builders or drafting games like uh, a game like Seven Wonders or a game like Dominion, yeah. which yeah. is something that we play all the time. Uh, a lot of Dominion, which is, you know, not the same style of game where you're playing monsters and things, but is card based 
that has some of the same ideas of like efficiency and card evaluation and some of the skills that CCGs require to play or help help you learn. So I just wanted to put a brief aside there that if you're not interested in those kind of things, those are other sort of good options that are not better or worse, just yeah. like a different gaming uh, Other standalone card games that are cards. closer to CCGs, but as you said, just buy a box and you get everything. Uh, like Netrunner was one of the really popular ones. Uh, there's a relatively new one called Epic Card Game that I have had a few friends uh, show me and it looks pretty promising. Uh, so yeah, there's there's all kinds of options for card games. There's also card game like adventure games where instead of battling your friends, you might be battling a monster on an adventure and your deck happens to be your adventurer. So I know Pathfinder card game is kind of a, a thing that's out there or uh, Clank is a game I really enjoy where it's a board game, but you're building a deck as you go along uh, or if you're looking for a fun card game like that online or, or digital, I really recommend slay the spire. That's been one of the, the games I've been addicted to lately where it's a, uh, it's a roguelike where you're repeatedly going into a dungeon, but every time you're building a new deck with your adventurer and seeing how far into the dungeon you can go. So there's all kinds of cool uh, card based mechanic games out there. They're the it's, it's really exploding. So is there anything else that, you know, you need to get off your chest about card games, either of you guys? I mean, I, I want to say that, um, you know, I, I always think that I find yeah. that card games kind of a very steep learning curve. Um, and that's what is a turnoff to me about CCGs a lot. Not only the economic output, but just like that's why I was really happy. And I think why Eternal stuck for me is because I sort of got in at the ground level. There was only one set out. There was like not that many cards I could kind of understand where you get you jump into the middle of magic game you're like they, i just don't know what's going on there's so many mechanics there's so much happening there can be a little bit and then even beyond that to just understand the basics of like something that <laughs> i'm terrible at like card evaluation yeah. i'm getting better now that i know how stuff works but just knowing like what is worth you know like you said greg said one of the staples of these is resources what resources is worth what and how do you construct a, a good deck and all these different things so um try and you know if you're interested in this kind of thing, push through that because it is worth it and it does become a lot easier over time. Well, and I would say that it's, I mean, one of the great things about these sorts of games as opposed to Battleship, I don't know, um, right. is that you are constantly learning. Not only, you know, it, it is, there's the learning curve of, you know, just getting the rules under your belt um, and, the learning and then the learning curve of just some general best practices of um, you know how to use your resources, but there's it's a constant learning curve of new strategies, um, new approaches to to deck design, new approaches to just how you play your game turn to turn. Um, so you're always learning this game, and I think that's one of the great things about it is that it is constantly constantly evolving not just because um you know wizards of the coast is pumping new cards into the set but just you know um and we've seen it happen in eternal where all of a sudden some weird genius comes up with a new way to use some card that's been in the you know been in the pool for a year and all of a sudden everything's turned on its head because um somebody figured out an interaction um i think you know a couple, you know, patches ago, like the idea of 
putting Echo on Inquisitor Macto, like those cards that had been available for a very long time. And then all of a sudden with, you know, somebody put two and two together and it completely disrupted the meta for a month. And it's just amazing to, uh, you know, to be a part of that and be a part of this evolving game. And as a player, constantly be trying to um, develop yourself, develop your skills, develop your analytical ability, develop your uh, card assessment ability. Um, your, yeah. The learning curve never ends. No, and I also think that the convergence of digital card games and, you know, before, you know, you'd have the internet and you could read guides and you could go to the magic store and you could look over someone's shoulder. But now with the ability to have websites dedicated yeah. to this and have streams, like that's the biggest thing. Like it's so much easier. I mean, I learned so much so quickly, so much more quickly than I would have just being able to watch another player play and explain, I'm doing this because this, I'm doing this because that. I built this card here because that, like that diminish yeah, it's, it's a problem that, that a lot of games face not just uh card games which is the burden of knowledge right if you've, if you've ever tried to get into league of legends or dota or something like that it's like all right there's 150 champions and then there's also when you actually get in the game you need to know the strategy of where you're supposed to go what you're supposed to buy what you're supposed to do and then card games have that as well where there's thousands of cards and it's not only figuring out what you're supposed to be doing with your deck but what your opponent's up to. And it's really fun to slowly learn and climb and figure out every day there's something you can be improving on. Even somebody like me where, yeah, I've had a lot of success in the game. I know there's tons of areas of improvement, different styles I can learn to play better, certain aspects to my game that I need to get better at. Uh, there's always room for improvement. Uh, and and that's, that's the awesome thing. And then there's always going to be room for improvement because the game is constantly evolving. And yeah, as you said, it card games especially lend themselves amazingly well to streaming and other media content. Uh, as a streamer myself, I think card games are the perfect thing for uh twitch streams or, or live streaming because the pace that you can play at is turn-based and there's so many decision points discussion points that you can always keep a conversation going there's always things to be talking about in terms of i played this card before this card because of this and you can debate and discuss and a lot of times there is never a correct answer because card games are about probability and trying to predict the future and you don't know what you're going to draw next you don't know what's in your opponent's hand you're trying to figure all these things out and it's a really fun challenge that's fun to tackle with other people alongside you and i think that that pace lends itself well to um people who might be turned off from other yeah. video games especially other competitive video games where Twitch and reaction time and your mastery of the controls, you know, are a huge part of your ability to uh, win or lose. I used to play a lot of Street Fighter because I really like that one-on-one -on -one kind of, it's just me versus just one other player. And, you know, we're going to try to out, out strategize and outplay each other. But more recent iterations of Street Fighter have become so execution focused, so Twitch focused that it's like, even if I can outthink the other guy, if he's if his fingers are faster, I lose. Um, so if you want to play games, especially you want to play multiplayer games online, you want to be involved in that, you know, a turn-based game where you have time to think about your next move and to, you know, it's really all about your strategy, nothing about, you know, how fast you are on the controller or how, you know, what's your APM. Eternal does not care. 
Yeah, I mean, as someone who's shitty at FPSs and RTSs and uh, aiming and fighting games, uh, that's a good fit for me. <laughs> also, just like if you're old like Greg and you just like, you know, got arthritis and, you know, sometimes you fall asleep between a turn or two. No, I don't fall asleep <laughs> between turns of Eternal. I, I, you know, I get distracted <laughs> by my taxes. <laughs> or opening up college saving accounts for my daughter, oh, which is what I was doing this yeah. morning while I was playing Eternal. <laughs> yeah, and it's also good for uh, for uh, you know yeah. slacking at work a little bit. Yeah, so it, it's you that. can Oof. play it on your Oof. phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, that's yes, you can. Do. You can. So cool. Well, this is a lot of fun. I would recommend to you all to uh, check out um, if you're into this. The cool thing about these games is that they're all like, all the digital ones. They're all free. It's like the opposite. On the one hand, you yeah. have to really cost you know heavy version of these paper games and then the other hand you have that all the digital ccgs yeah. are free uh to play so you can i will i will mention though that valve who owns steam and produces steam is coming out with a digital card game that is going to be an actual trading card game model uh so they're kind of looking to shake a bit shake it up where huh. you all the cards are going to have value you are going to be able to trade them and buy them and it's they're they're looking to actually reintroduce the economy to it i'm really uh interested to see where that goes you know valve always trying crazy ideas i believe the name of the game is going to be artifact um so if if you're looking for something really out there uh, uh, yep. richard garfield was actually one of the head designers for this game so it's got a real pedigree behind it i don't know when it's supposed to be coming out but there's there's uh, rumblings about it and it's something to keep an eye on in terms of valve trying to shake things up and reintroduce like all right we're coming out with a card game that's not free to play you do have to spend money on it let's figure it out and you know there's kind of been precursors like steam has trading cards and badges and weird stuff like that like they have the steam market so i'm interested to see where where uh, this this artifact game goes in terms of exploring the digital market that yeah i'd be interesting i'd be interested and i know val's probably not going to do this but if they found a way to introduce a trading <laughs> economy but not a real money economy so that i can only trade cards for cards and i can't cash my cards in for for real money um i would i would be very interested to see um and not only because it made me feel like i'm 11 again and the only thing i could get for my cards were other cards so that's all we can do here cool so check out some of these games uh let us know what you thought and um you know a little plug here for sure so if you want to check out my live stream i am on twitch.tv slash sir underscore rhino i can't put a space there so it's an underscore i also have my own eternal podcast if you want to check it out it's not mine i'm a guest host it's one of those things where i was a recurring guest and i recurred so much that he just made me a permanent uh, uh <laughs> co-host so that's uh, neon's eternal cast we, we make an episode once a week where we deep dive on what's going on in eternal and also trying to help you become a better card game player so those are mostly what i do i have a youtube channel but i just have not kept that up to date lately just something has to get cut when when my time gets busy and that's what i end up getting cut but uh yeah so i'm on twitch um, um i have a podcast that's that's about all i do with my life of note really <laughs> cool well thanks for taking the time to join us Corey. and this is a good discussion <laughs> I guarantee you, as soon as I we stop recording, I'm going to see like three little notifications that we all start playing. Uh, I've been playing but, the whole time uh, after talking about it for two hours. <laughs> 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 all, all right, right well. guys. 
I guess this is where we, I would normally say to Andrew, like, talk to you next week, but since it's the three of us, I don't have a sign-off, <laughs> so sign-off!